You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. in our place of need, and that our confession that we just sang, that we, we want to invite you, not that you need our invitation, but that we would be open-handed and open-hearted to your speaking to us through your word. So we ask you would tune our hearts from all the various places where we've been this last week in joy and in sorrow, that you would Tune us to the single note of your grace to us in Jesus. You'd unite our hearts together and that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us through your word. We ask for your help this morning that we might worship you, continue to worship you, not just in song, not just in prayer, but as we open uh, your word, as you speak to us that you'd receive praise and worship from us this morning. Help us to continue to worship today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. I'll remember to wait to turn on the microphone until I stand up here next time. I was trying to like be quick about it, and that was a fail. So good morning. Uh, good to be with you. <clears throat> I apologize ahead of time. I have a bit of a cold that has lingered. Um, so that's what you're hearing. Uh, you can blame it on the microphone, but it's no, it's me. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, last, last Sunday, uh, Pastor Marty graciously agreed to preach. I was gone for most of the week previous. Um, I was with a group of about 10 um, other Acts 29 pastors, and it was an encouraging time to be with those brothers for a few days. We went to a warm climate. We meet twice a year, and in the winter, we're like, where can we fly that's warm and cheap? And so we find a warm, cheap place to fly to, and we meet there instead of, you know, here or Minneapolis. In fact, I sent a text to them this morning, like, 13 days ago, it was like 70 degrees, and I was in a pool. And today, it's 8 degrees, and I'm wearing a cardigan again. So that's just what it is. Welcome. We live here. Um, I hope Marty's encouragement from last week was, was helpful to you, encouraging to you, as it was uh, for me this week, increasing my, my confidence. Uh, my faith as I approach the Lord in prayer and asking uh, for him to continue to grow that in my heart. Um, if you haven't listened to it, I'd encourage you to. It's up on our website um, under, under last week's messages. Today, we're going to continue in Luke's gospel. So if you need a Bible, uh, you can slip your hand up. Some folks will come around and give one to you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 17. And we're going to read from verse 20 all the way till the end of the chapter, uh, verse 37. Um, in this section of Luke today, there are some questions uh, surrounding, there's two questions really, uh, to address some confusion about the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean when he's talking about the kingdom of God? From the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he's been talking about the kingdom. All the gospels record it, and sometimes in different ways. In Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4, Jesus opens his ministry, the first a public ministry words of Jesus are this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you've followed us at all as we've worked our way through Luke, Jesus continues to talk about the kingdom. Luke chapter 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, Jesus says. I can't stay in this one place for I was sent for this purpose. Luke chapter 6, blessed are you who are poor, Jesus says, for yours is the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 8, <clears throat> soon afterwards in Jesus' ministry, he went through, uh, on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The pattern continues. Luke chapter 9, he sends out his disciples to do what he's been doing, and Jesus uh, Luke tells us this, that he, Jesus, sent out his disciples to what? Proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. 
And as his ministry is becoming more and more well-known, people are hearing about this Jesus guy, and not only are, is he going to them, they're seeking him out. Luke 9, verse 11, when the crowds learned of him, they followed him, and Jesus welcomed them. And what did he do? He spoke to them about the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. A little later in Luke, Jesus sends out his disciples again to pray for the sick, to proclaim the kingdom, and he tells them this. If people receive you, if they welcome you in, Luke chapter 9, heal the sick in that town and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's the message you're to bring when you go to these towns if they receive you in. And in verse 11, Jesus says, but if they reject you, here's your message. Uh, Excuse me, if the people reject you and your message, Jesus says this, even the dust of the town that clings to your feet, wipe it off. Nevertheless, Jesus says, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. So so the kingdom of God is advancing in the world, whether it's received or it's rejected. That's what Jesus is getting at. And because the kingdom of God is different, it's unique to the kingdoms of men, of which people are familiar, Jesus tries to explain it to them in parables. Jesus says things like this, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a great wedding feast. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is recording, recorded as saying that the kingdom of God is like a priceless treasure or a pearl that someone finds and they're willing to go and sell everything that they have so that they could go and buy that field and get that treasure or buy that priceless pearl. Jesus says that uh, a man who sows a seed or, or leaven worked into a dough spreads to the whole loaf. And that the kingdom of God is like that. It spreads and, 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 and spreads to all of the dough. Jesus also says that the kingdom is like fishing, casting a net into the sea, gathering up fish of every different kind. So the reason I, I gave you that framework of the kingdom Jesus uses parables that those who have ears to hear can, can hear and understand the, the beauty, the power, the uniqueness of God's kingdom, and that the way that God's kingdom works, the economy of God's kingdom is different than earthly kingdoms. In the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's actually the humble who are exalted. In the kingdom of God, it's the weak who are strong. It's the servants who are great. So this idea of the kingdom of God is this common theme in the life and ministry of Jesus. And as you can imagine, those who are listening to Jesus, both the Pharisee, the religious of the day, and the disciple, the one who wants to believe and wants to follow, they both have questions. Because this is weird to them. It's altogether different. And we're going to look at two of those questions today that come up in this text to seek to understand What is Jesus saying about the kingdom? So the goal today is to to clear up at least a little bit of confusion about the kingdom of God. And the first place to start, the first place I want to start this morning with understanding the kingdom of God is this. That wherever you find the king, you'll find the kingdom. Wherever you find the king, you'll find the kingdom. So let's read our whole text today, uh, and then we'll get into, the, get into it together. Uh, Luke chapter 17. I'm going to read it here. It'll be on the screen as well. I invite you just to follow along. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will look, excuse me, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. 
They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Now we'll get to the strange ending of that text here at the end about the vultures and the corpses. But Jesus here is is addressing some confusion about the kingdom. And so to get answers, we find in our passage two questions that kind of bookend our text. The first question the Pharisees ask, when? When will this kingdom of God get here? We don't see it, Jesus. But when is this kingdom coming that you're talking about? And then the disciples ask at the end, well, where? Where is this going to happen? How can we be ready for it? So that's kind of how we're going to look at the text. Two points today. One, seeing the kingdom. And two, ready for the kingdom. That's how we'll break up our, our text. And hopefully it'll only take, you know, just shy of an hour. So let's get after it. The question of when and the problem of not seeing. That's the problem here. They don't see it. So they ask, when is this kingdom going to be here? Verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was supposed to come. Now, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God all the time. And all the marvelous, miraculous works that Jesus does, he attributes to kingdom work. He heals the sick and the lame. He frees people from demonic possession. He raises the dead back to life. And the question the Pharisees ask is, after seeing all of this, we don't see it. Where is this kingdom? Look at Jesus' response. He says this, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now this might be confusing to you for a second because pretty much everything Jesus has said and done to this point is very observable. Right? We see all of it. In fact, all the way back in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist, who was the the forerunner to God's Messiah, the one who was uh, to prepare the way, he he is asking from prison. John's in prison. Uh, John spoke boldly against Herod and his sinfulness. And so John went to prison and John had disciples. And so John sends his disciples to go to Jesus and say, hey, are you the one we're waiting for, John's wondering, or should we look for another? I'm supposed to be the forerunner and here I am sitting in prison. I just want to make sure you're the one. And here's what happens in Luke 7. John calls two of his disciples, sends them to the Lord Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to Jesus, they said, Hey, John the Baptist has sent us to you, asking, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? This is what Luke tells us. In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Right in that same time frame. And Jesus answers John's disciples and says this, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. What have you seen and heard? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus' response to John's disciples is essentially, What do you observe? What do you see happening here? Am I doing the things a Messiah would do? Am I saying the things that God's Messiah would say? Now, we just assume that these disciples then turn back around and go tell John, yeah, yeah, he's the guy. Here's what we 
Here's what we see. Here's what we hear from Jesus. He's hearing, or excuse me, Jesus is saying and doing all the things that he said he would back in Luke chapter 4 when he quoted the prophet Isaiah. Jesus stands up in the synagogue, one of his first public acts, and he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he, the Lord, has anointed me, Jesus, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight for the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus says this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So we have to ask the question, what does Jesus mean then when he tells the Pharisees the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed? Because everything he's done to this point is to be observed. It's not that evidence of the kingdom isn't visible. The problem, I think, is that they're looking for the wrong things. If you ask the wrong question, you're going to get an answer that isn't helpful, right? If you're looking at the wrong evidence, you're, going, you're not going to get the right solution, so many people in Israel, including the Pharisees of the day, were expecting the Messiah to come in power, political power, to free them from their bondage, their subjugation under Rome. They wanted a prophet like Moses who would smite the Romans just like Moses smote the Egyptians. Smote's a good word, by the way. That's what they wanted. They wanted a prophet like Moses who would do to Rome what Moses did to Egypt. They wanted a battle-tested warrior king like David who would fearlessly stand up to the Goliath and say, how dare you? How dare you speak to God's people this way? Do you know the God we serve? And would chop off his head. That's what they were waiting for. Instead, what they got was a carpenter's son who wielded a very different kind of power. See, there were many before Jesus and many came after Jesus and to this day still claim to be Messiah. But every one of them would fail and die. Many would claim, hey, here's the evidence. It's over here. Here's the proof. It's here or it's there. But Jesus says, it's not observable in that way. And then he says this, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, here, here's what I think he's partially he's not saying. He's not telling these Pharisees that they've got it figured out, that they have the kingdom in, in their midst, like they've, they've got it, because they're not seeing with spiritual eyes. Jesus, I think, is saying to them, guys, I'm right here. I am right in front of you, and you don't see it. They say, where? Where is this king? Where is this kingdom? And I think what this passage does is it exposes immediately that these are spiritually blind men. They can't see what is right in front of their face. Maybe you've done this as I have. Opening the refrigerator door to look for something, and I dig around and I can't find it for the life of me. So I say, Amy, do we have any of whatever? Do we have any cottage cheese, for example? And she says, yeah, it's in the fridge. It should be on the top shelf. So I go back and open the fridge, and what do you know? It is on the top shelf. I looked there. I for sure looked there, but I missed it. Now, I might have missed it because in my mind, I was looking for a blue label, and it was a red one, so that was confusing. Or maybe I was just rushed, and I wasn't actually paying attention, and I kind of breezed right past it. Either way, I missed it. Maybe I just mistook, I thought it was sour cream or something. Anyone else? Nobody? Just me? Okay. Yeah. I'm getting some people raising hands and other people pointing to the person next to them. I'll, I'll, leave, that, uh, I'll leave that to you all. Either way, I was blind to what I was actually looking for, because I didn't find it. I didn't find it. And it's one thing to miss the cottage cheese, right? That's a really low-level miss. 
It's an entirely different thing to miss the kingdom of God because we are blind to spiritual reality. And so that's the question for us. That's the question I think we can ask from a text like this. When we talk about Jesus, when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about grace and mercy and truth and justice, when we talk about these sorts of things, when we're working through cultural issues that we find ourselves in through the lens of the scriptures, through a biblical worldview, when we desire to discern the truth of a matter, what comes from our words and our actions demonstrates our level of spiritual sight. Right? Are there places, here's the question then, are there places where the answer we get from God's word is just unsatisfying for us? I guess that wasn't enough. That's not what I was looking for. Right? Are we asking the right questions? Are we looking in the right place? Here, Jesus is standing right in front of these men with proof after proof after proof, and they don't see him for who he really is. And if they remain spiritually blind, they will miss out on the kingdom entirely. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the God of this world, that is Satan, Excuse me. Satan has blinded the minds of those who do not believe in Jesus. And it's only because of God's rich mercy that those who were once blind might be granted the miracle of spiritual sight. Friends, don't think that having our spiritual blindness removed is any less miraculous than having physical eyesight for being once physically blind. Because the God who spoke the Son into existence is the one who speaks light to my blind spiritual eyes. Spiritual sight comes with surrender. Surrender of my expectations to what God decides to provide. Surrender of my desires to God's decree. Surrender of my will to God's will. So maybe you need to hear that this morning. That you've been wandering around in the dark, spiritual darkness, thinking you can see, but not realizing the king is in your midst. And today that can change. There is spiritual sight to be had. If you came to church with someone this morning, I want to encourage you to ask them about that. And if you didn't, or you'd like to talk to someone, I'd be honored to talk with you. The question is, do we see the king? Because if we see the king, then we're able to see the kingdom. And just in case you think you can just chalk another one up to the overly religious, yeah, Jesus, you go get those Pharisees. They don't get it. Jesus turns this same warning on his disciples. Look at verse 22. And he says to his disciples, some will continue to say, look there or look here, but do not go out or follow them. There is a continued warning against being spiritually blind. It is possible for those with spiritual eyes, for those eyes to get dim. I'm 42 years old, and I've had glasses since, uh, I don't know, 14, 15 or so. I'm a bit nearsighted. I noticed it, uh, actually, uh, when I was learning how to drive as a 15, so it must have been 15, when I was like, I think I can read that sign that's halfway down the highway, but not really. And my dad was like, we should get your eyes checked before you're you know, operating a vehicle by yourself. So I wear glasses. And my last appointment, which is a little while ago now, maybe I should go back, the ophthalmologist decided to check my up-close vision as well, just on a whim. Hey, let's check how, how your close uh, vision is. And he brought the little card like right here with the super tiny print. He goes, is this one clearer than this one? And I'm like, oh yeah, that is a little clearer, thanks. You know what he said? Well, we don't have to do it now, but at some point, you might want to look at bifocals. I about told him to shut his mouth right there in the chair. I'm like, you, you shut your mouth. I didn't say that because he's a really nice guy. I like the guy. But I was like, are you kidding me? It is possible for physical eyes to get weak, and Jesus warns, don't be deceived and let your spiritual eyes grow weak. There's a warning there for the disciples as well. So that's the first question that gets asked. When will this kingdom arrive? 
And I think Jesus is clearly saying, I'm the king, and I'm here. I am inaugurating my kingdom. I have invaded, he's saying. And it might not look like you're expecting it. The kingdom of God is here in your midst because I'm here and I'm the king. So let's not be content remaining spiritually blind or even spiritually dull, but rather, like the beggar on the side of the road, cry out to Jesus for mercy to heal us from our blindness, to help us see. That's the first question that gets answered here. The second question comes at the very end of our text, verse 37. The disciples ask, where, Lord, where will these things happen that you say are going to happen? These days of the Son of Man, where will all of this take place? Which leads to our second point this morning. It's one thing to see the kingdom, to be able to identify it. It's a whole other thing to be ready for it when it comes. So that's our second point today, ready for the kingdom. Now, I've been, <clears throat> I've recognized that uh, the last number of weeks here in Luke, these sermons have been long. So if you need to take a deep breath and stretch a little bit, whew, already, okay, just five seconds, four, okay, good. Point two, ready for the kingdom. Now, Jesus kind of slow walks the disciples from seeing the kingdom clearly to what to do now once they are sure the king is here. And so he lays out this, and we've talked about it a lot here at River City, an already and a not yet reality as it relates to God's kingdom. Here, here's what I mean. Theologically, when it comes to the kingdom of God, there is a present reality and a future reality. Two words I want to highlight as we try to understand God's kingdom. Inauguration and consummation. The present when God the Son, born to a virgin, taking on a, a human nature, fully God and fully man, God incarnate, came in human flesh, that was the inauguration, the beginning, if you will, of God's kingdom invading earth in this new covenant relationship. I read it earlier. Jesus says it all the time, right? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. It is present and, this is not a but, this is an and, the future, the kingdom of God, will be fully consummated. That is, it'll be fully realized on the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day when Christ returns in glory, when he puts all of his enemies under his feet forever, when finally everything that is broken will be undone, when all will be made new, and, and those who have died in him will be raised again to new and glorious life forever, and he will welcome his people to dwell with him forever. Amen. That's good, right? That's a, that's a not yet reality of this same kingdom. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here in your midst, because the king is here, and Jesus says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to rise again, I'm going to ascend, but when I come again as the king who has conquered, I will bring with me the fullness of the kingdom. So it's one thing to see the spiritual reality of the kingdom of God as being present, and it's another to be ready for the kingdom of God when it comes in its fullness. And I think this passage addresses both. Look at verse 24. Jesus says this, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. This one's easy. Lightning is fast. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Right? It goes from pitch dark to daylight bright in a moment, and it is gone again. Jesus says the day of the Son of Man, the return of the King, is going to be lightning fast. Now, we've talked about this before, and it really doesn't matter your personal theological convictions as it relates to eschatology. If you've been reading ahead, you're like, ooh, is Jake going to talk about eschatology today? Yeah, a little bit. Eschatology meaning like the theology of the end, like what is all going to come to pass at the end. Let me say this. All historical, biblical positions hold that the return of Christ will be like an instant. 
And Jesus says, on that day when the Son of Man returns, life on that day, life happening all around when that day happens, is just going to look a lot like it did in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. So the question is, what's happening in the days of Noah and the days of Lot? And to understand that, we have to go back to Genesis. Because life in the days of Noah and life in the days of Lot doesn't seem a whole lot different than life in the days of Jake or of Austin or of Greg or any of the rest of your names. It doesn't. Noah we read about back in Genesis chapter 6 and Lot we read about in Genesis 18 and forward. Luke tells us that in the days of Noah, we see people were just going on about their lives. Not a care in the world. They were eating and drinking. They were having parties. People were getting married. All the way up until the very last day when Noah and his family went into the ark and the doors were shut and it started to rain. That's what was happening. Normal life. And in Lot's day, the same. Conducting business, buying and selling goods, planting fields, building buildings. Sounds a lot like life today, right? So are we supposed to read a passage like this and go, well, time to just unplug from life. Time to sit on the roof and wait for Jesus. I, I, I don't think that's a good takeaway for us. If that's your takeaway, let's talk. I just don't think that's a good approach. The problem wasn't what they were doing, living life. The problem was they were surprised when Jesus came. Now, they shouldn't have been, but they were. Uh, Biblical scholars estimated that it took Noah a minimum, a minimum of 50 years to build the ark with the tools and the technology that he had available to him. Even with some kind of supernatural assistance from God, it would have taken a long time for Noah and his sons, essentially, to build this giant boat. The whole time, over 50 plus years going, hey, God said it's going to rain. That's why I'm building this giant boat. And the people in Noah's day were like, okay, Noah, good for you. Right? Sure it is. That was their approach. So when the rain did begin to fall, they were surprised. But they shouldn't have been. But it was too late. That's a long surprise. That's a 50-year surprise. You should have, should have known. In the days of Lot, we learned that Abraham... Yes, that Abraham, the head of the nation of Israel, pleaded with God to preserve the city of Sodom. Lord, if there's just one righteous person there, would you save him? And God says, well, I'll rescue Lot and his family from the city, but I'm destroying the city. The only one found to be God-fearing in the whole city was Lot. And so God called Lot's family out of the city, and then he rained down fire and destruction upon it. And and that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here. Don't be surprised when the day comes. Don't be unprepared like they were unprepared. The return of Jesus will be sudden. We talked about this in our study in in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, uh, however long ago that was. I think that's on our website too if you're interested. The return of Jesus will be sudden, but for the believer, it isn't surprising or shouldn't be. Now, the question when we read a passage like this is like, well, why? Why were the people in the days of Noah, why were the people in the days of Lot surprised when the flood and the fires of judgment came? Why? Let's keep going. Verses 30 and 31, he says, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. And then we get the second shortest verse in the entire Bible. The first one is Jesus wept. The second one is this one, Luke 17, 32. Remember Lot's wife. Now, we don't know her name. She is Lot's wife. But I think she is a good illustration as to why the people in Noah's day were surprised and why, in this case, the people in Lot's day were surprised. How many of you have been on an airplane? Show of hands. I was just on one, so this illustration is fresh. Right? You sit down, and they have to get your attention. They're like, can you take out your headphones? We're going to give the safety talk now. And I'm like, I know how to use a seatbelt. 
Thank you. My favorite one is when they tell you that, you know, should the cabin lose uh, pressure, the oxygen mask will fall. And they're like, there's oxygen coming to the bag even if it doesn't inflate. And I'm like, okay, right. Let's hope that that's true. I've never tested it, but the bag's not going to inflate, but you'll be fine. Oh, sure, thanks. I'm in a hollow metal tube in the air, but great. That just always makes me laugh. The part I find funny is that they say, should there be an accident and should there be some kind of disaster and we have to crash land, don't take anything with you. Here's how to operate your life vest. Head for the exits. The closest one might be behind you. Jump on the slide and go. And I always think that's funny because they don't want someone saying, okay, we're crashing right now. I'm going to go into the overhead bin and pull out my oversized carry-on and I'm going to drag that out with me on the... Of course not. What? That would like clog up everything. And what are you going to do floating in the middle of the ocean? Like unzip and be like, I'm going to change my socks. Like it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. They tell you to not do that. Don't get your stuff. You put on the vest and you get out the plane. That's what you're supposed to do. Why? That's the picture. You can't put a life vest over your backpack. So just, just get out of the plane. And that's the picture here. I don't know if it's a good illustration, but I'm running with it. On that day, Jesus says, don't plan on going back to the house to grab a few things. Don't rummage around in the overhead compartment to pull out the things you don't want to lose. On that day, that's not how this is going to go. Don't go back for the stuff that you forgot. But that's exactly what Lot's wife does, which I think is why Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. The Lord tells Lot to leave the city. And Lot even prays to God and says, God, would you preserve this small little city over here? Because we're probably going to die wandering around in the wilderness. So could we just flee to that little city? And God says, okay, I'm going to grant you. I'm going to preserve this little city so you and your family can, can flee where you're at and find a home there. God is gracious to him in that. And as they are on their way out, the sun rises in the morning and Lot and his family, they're nearing the city and destruction starts to rain down on Sodom behind them. Genesis 19, here's what it says, verses 24 through 26. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew these cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. He decimated it. Verse 26. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. In the midst of the salvation of her family, Lot's wife dies in her sins. Why is this significant? I think it means this, at least in part, that the primary problem in the days of Noah or the days of Lot was not that people were getting married. It wasn't that people were having parties or planting crops or building buildings. Those things weren't the problem. The problem was that for, for them, those things were the most important things in their lives, so much so that they were blind to the reality of what was coming. Like Lot's wife, they loved those things more than they loved God. Here it is. Their hearts were drawn towards those things in their lives in such a way that it caused them to second guess what the Lord had said. And they longed more for those things than what God had said is in front of them. Verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life, Jesus says, will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. So the caution here is, is to not seek to preserve, to hold so tightly to temporary things that they would rob you of fully embracing those things that are eternal. Or to use kingdom language, to not be so consumed by our participation in the kingdoms of the earth that we lose sight of our eternal citizenship in the kingdom of God. So, for the one this morning that might not have faith in Jesus, I think this first part of this passage is for you to, to wrestle with. Like so many in the days of Noah, in the days of Lot, there is blindness 
in the eyes of those who don't believe in Jesus. And we need the blindness removed so that we can see Jesus for who he is. And when we see him for who he is, we will worship him as Lord and King. That's the first takeaway. But for the believer in Jesus, for the one who says, yes, I believe in him, I I trust in him, he is my King, the takeaway and the caution for us is a little different. Lot's wife was married to the only righteous man in the city. Now, Lot wasn't perfect by any means, but he's a man who loved God and God purposed to save him and preserve him. What's more, Lot's wife was connected by family to Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, the human father of God's covenant people. And yet, to paraphrase uh, J.C. Ryle, the world was in Lot's wife's heart, and her heart was in the world. She was afraid that following where the Lord was leading meant that she would miss out on something from her past life. But the only thing back there was death. You seek to preserve bits of that past life, you lose, Jesus says. But in losing your life, you will actually find life. Jesus continues, verses 34 and 35. He says this, two in the same house, in the same bed, or two women working side by side at the millstone, grinding grain, and in an instant, one will be taken up and the other one left. Again, we don't have to go into the depths of your particular position on eschatology or the millennium or any of that to understand this passage. In an instant, in an instant, comes the lightning of the return of Christ Jesus. So hear me, proximity to another Christian does not guarantee exit into the kingdom. That's part of what's being said here. Lot's wife had all the benefits of spiritual and religious proximity. She was lost. Just like the person side by side in the bed or side by side in the field or side by side grinding grain. This is the sobering reality of Jesus' words here when he says, remember Lot's wife. Remember the people in the days of Noah. Don't be unprepared. Now, this isn't meant to be a scare tactic, right? We don't scare people into the kingdom. The question is, what does it mean? What does it mean to be prepared? Well, there's lots of things it could mean. Let me just give one. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul lays out this, this argument, if you will. He says this, I have no confidence in my own ability. I don't, I don't trust in my own privilege. I don't trust in my own flesh. I don't trust in any goodness that I have, Paul says. Any righteousness, any goodness that I have comes because I have faith in Christ Jesus. That's the foundation of Paul's argument. Any goodness that I have is because of faith in Christ. He continues, Christ then is the righteous king who takes rebellious slaves and makes them sons and daughters. And it's because of my position in Christ, Paul says, that I rely on and I walk in, Philippians 3 verse 10, Paul says, I walk in the power of Christ's resurrection. That is, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in me, Paul says. So, here's the case I'm making. Readiness looks like this, verses 12 through 14 of Philippians. That we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. So our confidence and our ready hope, as Paul says, that there's those whose God is their belly, their comfort, and their temporary pleasure, Paul says, their end is destruction. Like it was in the days of Noah, like it was in the days of Lot. But, Paul says this, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, from our citizenship, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ in us and and us in Christ. So that, remember, anywhere where the King is, the kingdom is. So we are moving forward toward the fullness and consummation of the kingdom of God to come while we live as citizens of that kingdom already with Jesus as our King. 
Now, maybe you've noticed this, maybe not, but I've noticed this, that from the time we started back in Luke in January, the beginning of, of Luke 16, there has been a weight or a seriousness. If there's a, if there's a, if there's a heaviness notch that's been turned up, it seems like Jesus has turned up the heaviness and seriousness notch since we started again in Luke 16. And maybe you've heard that reflected in our preaching. It's not that there's not joy. I've personally been challenged and encouraged in our time in Luke since we've gotten back into it. And there's joy in these passages too. We read a couple of weeks ago. You have to know there was joy coming from the heart and the mouth of the, of the leper who was healed, right? In a few weeks, where Jesus says, let the little children come to me. You know they're joyfully gathered around Jesus' feet. But it seems that Jesus' ministry has taken on a, a seriousness. There's been a turn here. And there's been a seriousness in Jesus' words that I've felt in my own preparation. A heaviness that I've felt in the spiritual battle during the week in preparation. And so maybe you've picked up on that. Maybe an increased seriousness in some of the preaching that I've felt. See, Jesus here is stone-cold serious about spiritual reality. It's as if there's not enough time any longer to, for people to mess around, Jesus is, seems to be saying. In fact, when the disciples finally get around to asking the question in verse 37, okay, Lord, you've talked now about judgment and how it'll all come like lightning and how two side by side, one will go and one will be left. Where will this all take place? Jesus' response is sobering. He says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The vultures of judgment will circle the corpse of spiritual death told you it got serious. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Luke, says this is why this is significant. Let me, I'm just going to read a little bit. It's a little longer uh, quote, and I'll include it in the, the resources this week. I, I didn't know how else to paraphrase it or say it differently, so I'm just going to let Ryle say it. Let us lay to heart these things. He who loves his relatives and friends is especially bound to consider them. If those whom he loves are true servants of Christ, then let him know that he must cast in his lot with them if he would not one day be parted from them forever. If those whom he loves are not yet dead in trespasses in sins, let him know that he must work and pray for their conversion, lest he should be separated from them for all eternity. And then Ryle says this, this present life is the only time for this for such work. Life is fast ebbing away from us all. Partings and separations and the breaking up of families are at all times painful things. But all the separations that we see now are nothing compared to those eternal separations which will be seen when Christ comes again. There's a seriousness to Jesus' words here that I don't want us to miss. This doesn't have to be artificially heavy, but here's the reality. That the kingdom of God is present and Jesus rules as king now and he will bring to full completion, fulfillment, all of his kingdom. And in that moment, everything changes. It's done. It's done. And so on the, on the weighty side, let's take Ryle's words with some uh, measure of seriousness ourselves, that there's, there's only so much time that he's given us here to go about this work of living in the kingdom. And let's also take it with a measure of hope that we don't have to worry and fret about some of the destruction we see around us. doesn't mean it doesn't concern us, but it doesn't overtake us. Rather, we can engage in the lowercase k kingdoms, bringing to bear the values and the power of the capital K kingdom, if I can say it that way, of Christ Jesus. So we live here in this already with hope of not yet, going about the work of the kingdom of God, walking in the power and under the authority of King Jesus with hope 
rather than cynicism or despair. Because we have confidence that Christ will come in a moment to bring to fullness and finality all that is yet to be fulfilled. So don't be confused and don't lose heart. Christ is king here and now. Amen? And Christ is coming again to finish what he started. So let's join him in that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that our confidence, like Paul, is not in our ability, it's not in our position, it's not in our knowledge, it's not in our theological clarity. Our, our position before you is fully by faith in Christ Jesus, that we are hidden in him. And if we are hidden in him, then we are his. Father, I pray for those in the room who still are enduring blindness spiritually, that you would remove scales from eyes. By the power of your Holy Spirit, you would awaken to life dead hearts and bring spiritual sight to those who are blind. We ask that, believing that you'd love to answer that prayer. Father, and those who have been granted spiritual sight, we ask, please, that you would uh, clear off the fogginess and the dimness of our eyes. That we would not be lulled into complacency with the comforts of the world. But we would go on about our eating and our drinking and our building and our planting with intentionality here and a firm hope of what's to come. That we would not be caught off guard or surprised, but that we would be hoping and waiting and watching for the fullness of your kingdom to come. Help us to live in this reality, surrendered, fully surrendered to you, Lord Jesus, as our king, and not asserting ourselves as kings. And also, full of hope and anticipation for the glory that will be revealed. Would you nourish us through this meal at the table, Holy Spirit? Reminding us of what it took to, to purchase us, to bring us into your kingdom. That it was the sacrifice of the righteous and perfect king dying for his unrighteous people. Would you stir our, our affections all the more for you, Lord Jesus, as we come to the communion table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.